You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and normally my friend Arthur Parkinson. But today, instead of Arthur, I have Dan Pearson, who all of you will know of and admire, who is the fantastic, exciting and innovative garden designer who has got so much all the time to teach us all about plant combinations and the plants we should be growing and the sense of place and the relationship between plants and where they're planted. I'm really excited. I'm just going to witter on a little bit more about Dan because I remember, gosh, I mean, it must be 25 years ago, I would, I would guess that he first came onto our screens where he was creating that amazing pond in his godmother's garden. And normally when the rest of us create a pond, we sort of dig a little hole and and that's it. But with Dan, it was like massive and glamorous and exciting and wonderful. And then I also remember walking into the Chelsea Flower Show and almost the opposite extreme of that, this incredibly beautiful roof garden planted with only three varieties of Echovira. And I remember being completely blown away by that. But anyway, welcome, Dan. It's so lovely that you've agreed to have a chat about this with us on or with me on this. Yeah, welcome. Thank you very much. One of the reasons that we're talking today is you're about to start this new venture with Create Academy. So will you talk to us about that? Yes, I've just had a very exciting summer capturing something of the garden at my place in Somerset at Hillside in film, which is always a really interesting medium, I think. I always find photographs kind of restricting with trying to capture images of gardens Mm. because they immediately freeze something which is all about time. It's about more than just the three dimensions. Mm. And um, we got approached during the first lockdown, I think it was, by Create Academy, who are making online series with designers, which are very beautifully filmed, quite nicely in-depth studies, really, with various designers, whether they're interiors, or I think I'm the first garden designer that they've worked with, Right. to impart some of that knowledge. So it's an online course, and I think there are 23 different sections to it, which are each about 15 minutes long. And it was filmed over the course of the summer. So we saw the garden at Hillside unravel itself from the moment it was cut right back down at the end of the winter, which is when I prefer to give everything a clean start rather than rush at it too soon. And then that gave us the opportunity really to look at the garden coming to life and for me to talk about how I'd approached a naturalistic garden on this hillside and what the moves were that I made to key the garden into the place. So it's very much a series about looking naturalistically at garden design and also naturalistically at uh, planting design. It's the way that I 
approach my work really, which is to feel my way into a place and try and reveal the sense of place. And we've got to a point now at Hillside where we've been there for 10 years and the garden is really beginning to feel like it's part of the place. So mm. it felt like a really wonderful thing to do to be able to to share this. And so are you on camera describing particular plants that you love or I mean are you sort of teaching through the film content yes we are so the there are a series of lessons right that are woven into the series so we look at planting design an approach to general layouts uh, the key things you might need to think about in terms of understanding a place and then revealing its best identities Mm. and um it's very uh, informally treated in a way, but there's a very nice structure sitting within it. And whereas I write weekly in Dig Delve, our online magazine that we do from Hillside, I think this felt like another opportunity to go back to the filming which I did many, many years ago and then stepped away from and talk things through rather than use the written words. So it was, it was really interesting. And is someone interviewing you or you're, you're, you're talking to camera? So the team, it, no, I'm talking to camera mm. and I was in dialogue with the team. So they're, they're okay. behind the camera and prompting the questions. Right, right. Great. So that's how it works. So you don't see them, you don't hear them, but um, I'm responding to uh, a steer from the, from the, from the director. And it, it's released kind of now? It's been released in November. Yeah. 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 And things since I last did that, I think you, you, you referred to the pond with the home farm series, yes. which was in 2000. Wow, it's And things have changed a lot since then. You know, that's when I kind of stepped away from doing filming. Yeah. It's a much smaller team, which made it very kind of light and easy on its feet. They brought a, uh, a drone. So we've got the technology of the drone, which, of course, is amazing because you have the bird's eye view of the place. Brilliant. How exciting. Which is very sophisticated in a way. It's, it's terrific. Yeah. And I wonder if you'd be happy to talk about the garden that you have completed now at Sissinghurst, which is a place that I'm involved with because I'm married to Adam Nicholson, who's Vita Sapfowest's grandson, and we lived there for nine years. And I certainly think that the garden that you've made at Sissinghurst is the most exciting thing that's happened at Sissinghurst in my lifetime. It's just absolutely remarkably balanced of looking back and looking forward. And that's why I find it so exciting. But how did you get involved with that? Thank you, Sarah. I mean, it's been a very, very exciting project. I was working with Troy as a, we joked really in a way, we called it a godparenting role. Uh, for about five years and Troy the head gardener had wanted me to go down just for a day I think we started with twice a year and then we went back to once a year but at different seasons and it was really just a brainstorm to for him to talk about his ideas of how he wanted to relax the garden and make it feel more authentically Vita and Harold's yeah and less highly manicured but still beautifully tended and more in the spirit of the way that they'd imagined that garden could be. So for me, that was an incredibly exciting thing to be able to do. And I went down with no other agenda other than just to exchange a conversation, you know, which is a really 
wonderful thing to do because I think the best gardens really come out of a dialogue between people, whether it's a, a couple or a partnership or, or you know, a partnership which could, could be owner and gardener. And I think you often get a very different perspective from having somebody from the outside coming in and just saying, oh, that's interesting. How about this? Or I really think that's working. This is working less well. Or could we make it work better by doing this? And I think that refreshing pair of eyes was what Troy was wanting. And we always, as we were going around the garden, got to Delos and it always felt like a forgotten place. I'd always known it as being this little woodland garden on the wrong side of the white garden, on the wrong side of the tall wall, yeah. alongside the library, on the edge of the garden and sort of somewhere in nowhere. And um, we eventually, every time we, we, we sort of bypassed and said, yes, that needs some work. That needs a, a stronger sense of something because it had really lost its way when Vita and Harold had gone to the island of Delos in 1935, mm. they'd been so inspired by it and what they found with the ruins and the history and that really interesting thing that happens with ruins where nature takes over, that they wanted to bring some of that back to Sissinghurst. And of course, this was a really innovative thing to do mm. in the second half of the 1930s. And uh, we had some wonderful pictures as a guide no words, really. It wasn't written about very much at all. Vita had said she thought it wouldn't, it wasn't working, but one day it might come right. Right. So we knew that she had an ambition for it to be improved. And it really grew out of a set of photographs, some old photographs from uh, the late 1930s, after they'd made it using some of the old ruins from mm. Sissinghurst, some local ragstone bits and bobs, they made a makeshift garden that referred to this once very powerful town which had fallen into decay. And then they overplanted it with sisters and things that were Mediterranean, but planted it into Kentish clay, Wealdon clay, yeah. on a north-facing slope with winds coming across the fields on the wrong side of the tall shady wall, etc., etc. Yeah. And it failed. So by the time I knew it, when I first started going there as a teenager, it was full of martyrdom lilies and mm. astrantias and things which had been planted by the gardeners then. Pam and Sybil, uh, some of the people who started to make it work for a cool-facing garden. And Troy said, look, we really need to look at this. He came to me once at the Chelsea Flower Show and said, I think I'm really ready to do this. Would you actually step in and make this a proper commission. So we'd had the time together to talk about his big ideas for Sissinghurst. We'd had time to get to know each other. I had had that really special time at Sissinghurst. Sometimes I stayed there overnight, which was completely magical, to understand what the place was about. I've read Vita's writings about uh, the gardens and really believed that there was something that could happen here to improve it. So yeah. we looked back and then we looked at the now and then we looked forward to work out how could we do something that would work with that ambition of theirs 
and the things that we've learned and the opportunities that we have to do something really properly and not in a makeshift way. So our studio came up with a, a design that looked at some of the old principles of that wonderful old walkway that ran through the middle, um, the east-west walkway. Yeah. And one of the things that was very key to me was that we managed to find a way of harvesting the sunshine and the north-facing slope. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, so... Troy was great. He said, look, what trees do we need to keep? What don't we need to keep? We went through a very careful process with the National Trust of proving to them what we were doing. So nothing was done without thinking. And um, we made the space by taking out the majority of the trees, leaving one magnolia, the poplar, which is so much an identity of Sissinghurst, and um, I lilac, I think, and then one of the original oaks that Peter and Harold had planted. And then made a new structure of terraces which refer to the original walkway through the garden, which is like the old town high street, Yeah, using the well as a centrepiece, a gathering place, and then made a series of terraces which were like the terraces that would go off into a Grecian landscape that felt much more rustic, much more like the shepherds had made them, with small goat tracks leading mm. between them where the animals would have made their own way. All these new terraces were then battered back into the sunshine. So we got the light hitting the land like it hits you if you sit in a deck chair facing the sunshine. So instead of the sun sliding across the landscape. It's genius, that. I mean, it is genius. Well, it, it's just such a... It's so satisfying when you mm. do something and it really works. Yeah, I mean, it seems so obvious, but yet it wasn't obvious. Yeah. Yes, Exactly. And then, of course, these terraces, which are about you know 600 mil high, are then backfilled with an incredibly free-draining mix, mm. which is 30% soil and the rest is gravels and broken brick dust. So that means that we've got, above that Kentish clay, a very free-draining mix in which we can plant an entire palette of Greek or Mediterranean plants, things that are specific to Greece as well. Yeah. So we've been very, very strict about that and went and did a a wonderful workshop with Olivia Filippi in the south of France who grows Mediterranean plants. Yeah. Troy had sent uh, one of the students out to Delos to do a study, so we had images of what it felt like. And the garden has now been planted and beautifully looked after by one of the gardens called Saffron during the whole of the lockdown. I think the last planting we did was in the last week before the first lockdown. Right. So, of course, it had a whole first summer to establish itself without any kind of pressure of people. Yeah. And the thing that it, it feels very future-oriented, although, of course, with a really sort of well of the historical with Vita and Harold, but I love the fact that there are so many incredibly drought-tolerant plants, which, of course, is is what we all need to be thinking about. So there's the scattering of the two types of dianthus all through it gives you these sort of beautiful, kind of embroidered, light, airy feelings of colour, which I know are incredible. I mean, Dianthus Carthusianorum, and, and there's another one as well, isn't there? Cruentis, that both... The Cruentis, just that blood red. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The air in the planting was really important. We needed to keep space between things. You know, when you go... I go to Greece, as I know you do... Mm very regularly and one of the things I absolutely love about it is the fact that there is it's quite actually it's quite a sparse landscape in places and yeah being able to see through things when everything's resting in the summer um, is just as wonderful as that incredible 
way that it lights up after winter rains in the spring. So we wanted to make sure that we didn't overplant it. And I think one of the things that the gardeners are going to have to keep to now is keeping that space in the planting. And they've developed this way of pruning things, which they call goat pruning, which <laughs> yeah. is basically they imagine they're the goats and they, they kind of nibble things back so they're pinching things out like they've been grazed by goats rather than a more formal kind of pruning and yeah that keeps things tight and i think yes you're right it's it's really wonderful to be given this opportunity to look at an old established garden which i think has a danger of being preserved in aspect yeah totally but gardens are never they're never static are they they, no. they keep moving forwards if you allow them to um, and if you don't, they kind of get stuck. So this is part of a really interesting new move at Sissinghurst uh, and, and a confidence, I think, with the people that are now allowing this to happen there. It's great. Yeah, it is. It is. It's really great. And and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it is actually I was I was just there a few days ago and I think it's going to be a wonderful winter garden. So the people who are listening to this, I, I really urge you to go. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily wait till spring when, of course, there will be lots of wonderful Mediterranean bulbs coming up. But actually, you know, if you want to go somewhere in the next few weeks, it's, uh, it's looking real because the skeleton is so fabulous and um, the pomegranate and everything that you, I know you put in, but it feels almost as magical um, when I was there a few days ago, as it was when um, I was at the launch with you in, in June, I think, uh, when it was full of flowers and colour. Mm. But I think it's going mm. to be a... It, it's you know, very structural, it's, isn't it's it? very structural and so very 12-month round. And, and I think they are, as you say, Saffron and, and Helen and, and the gardeners are, are doing it so well. And, of course, now with Troy returned as sort of overseeing it, it's all very exciting. And then the, the other thing that... Um, I know that you're working on so much at the moment and is so important to you is your Japanese project. And I came to a talk that you gave at the Garden Museum. And so I wondered whether you, you would mind just talking to us a little bit about that before we finish. Yes, that's an extremely exciting uh, project. It is a 400 hectare site, which is huge, uh, going up into the mountains in northern in Hokkaido, which is the northernmost island. And I've been doing the project for just in 2000, I went out for the first time. And the owner is a newspaper magnate called Mr. Hayashi, and he wanted to offset his carbon footprint for his newspaper business by preserving this piece of land. And he came up with this wonderful concept with the now late Takano, who was a landscape designer, who asked me to be involved in the project. And they hated the original master plan for the site to make it sustainable for a thousand years, which is a kind of crazy rhetoric. If you try and get your head around it, it's almost impossible. But it's basically poses the question: How do we look at landscape now with a view to its value for the future? Uh, so it's all about education. It's all about allowing people to fall in love with a place to the point of caring for it to the degree that gives it longevity and sustainability. Now, sustainability is a horribly misused word now. I think we don't really think about what it means enough truly deeply because it's used as frequently. But it's all about trying to key into the important things about the natural world, which 
we need to really consider, especially now more now than ever, when we have this very short time frame in which to adjust the way that our impact is on the world. Yeah. And to try and look after the world for it to look after us back. And the Millennium Forest really is an opportunity for gardening to become part of that educational story. So I was asked to add to the original framework of the master plan, which was that this place would be an ecological park, to produce a, uh, a garden's master plan. So we made about 18 places in a relatively small part of the park um, that combined the woodlands, the edge of the mountain, the streams, the open clearings and the farm to tell a story about our place in the world. And horticulture really helped in telling that story and unwrapping the ideas for the public. So we were able to ground people in a wild place through making places feel inhabited through horticulture and inhabited through good design and allow the juxtaposition of this wild place to come right up to meet you in this safe place. So Mm. it's a very exciting project and I released a book almost exactly a year ago now about it, which I've written with Midori Shintani, the really super wonderful gardener, head gardener there, who's been there since 2008 when we planted a big meadow garden using Japanese natives from the forest and Western-style plants that are hardy to that climate that goes down to minus 25 degrees. And it's planted in a deeply naturalistic way so that we juxtapose the native plants with, to their eye, foreign plants, which allows them to look at what's under their nose with a new pair of eyes. So it's an amazing project. I think it's the sort of thing that could be rolled out in many different places in the world as a way of engaging with landscape, as a way of helping to educate people, as a way of good design and, and horticulture coming together to help to tell that story. And and so again, there's, there's sort of borrowed landscape, but interpreting it in a way that is not threatening, either aesthetically or kind of physically, really. Absolutely. There's, there are various ways of looking at landscape through gardens in Japan, which are very sophisticated. They have this thing called sheke, which is the borrowed view. Mm. So your garden might be tiny, but uh, by borrowing even a slot between the two buildings of the tree in the distance, or if you're like a hill or a mountain or some water, mm. you can allow your mind to travel beyond the boundary of the garden. And the wonderful thing about gardens are that they are places that can allow you to travel in your mind. Mm. They can allow you a sense of connection with the world which can take you beyond the boundaries of where you're actually are. Yeah. So we use that because there are these incredible mountains in the background. We also use another wonderful system that they have there of living in the world, which is called Satoyama, which is about only taking as much from the land as you need. So it's this idea, in a way, about reciprocity being important, that there's a, a give and take, and you never take more than you need, and in turn, return, nature gives you back. So the idea of, to put it fairly crudely, you might be gardening or tending more intensively immediately alongside your buildings, 
And as you move further away from the buildings into farmland, you've got a different system. But you've only carved out as much farmland as you might need for the village. And then beyond that, you've got the forest, into which the first part you might be foraging for food and taking building materials. And then beyond that, you might have a rotation of coppicing where you allow the forest to regenerate. You only take as much as you need for your building materials. And then beyond that, it's purely wild. So it's the way in a way that I'm living at Hillside. So for me, there were all these wonderful parallels between home and there. And it helped to have these systems of doing things that allowed us to communicate easily as a, as a Western designer with, with a Japanese audience. You know, we could do things that were in the Western style, but using their systems that felt familiar. Yeah. And if, um, I mean, maybe we can sort of finish with this, but if I'm aware that, that quite a few people who listen to this perhaps don't live in a rural context, but in a more urban context, is there anything you could explain to us that they could borrow from that idea, that philosophy of gardening lighter and more sustainably, really? I think uh, in, in terms of, of the, the, the Satoyama, probably not so easily translated into a more urban environment. But I think in terms of the general approach of your hand being lighter, I think even in smaller gardens, you know, you can keep places closer to the building that are more intensively tended and, and then allow the garden the opportunity to be itself further away where your hand of your manicured hand and your yeah. control is less. Loosens, so that yeah. at this time of year, for instance, you're, you're not clearing for the leaves, you're leaving the perennials to die back into the ground and enjoy their skeletons, which of course the high vernacular for all the insects that live there and waiting to the last minute in the end of the winter to clear up. Mm. And I think those systems that we can put in place for us to be more responsible about how we're tending mm. our gardens and yeah. seeing ourselves as just being part of what lives in those gardens. And we share them with lots of other things that choose to live there too. And yeah. to live more harmoniously with those things and strike a balance with those things is, is ultimately more rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, that's a very nice point to end on, I'd say. So <laughs> thank you, Dan, very much. It was lovely to talk, even if briefly. I'm very grateful and it's very thought-provoking. I definitely do. I do looser, but I definitely, I think I do a bit too much cutting of hedges and things. So it's really good to think about. Thank you, Dan, for joining us. Thanks so much for listening to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. And it was really lovely for me to chat to Dan And next week, actually, I'm not here because Arthur's talking to Shane Connolly, the wonderful florist who concentrates on sustainable floristry. And they're going to talk about all the things that are really important from never using Oasis again in any of our lives to how to just grow, pick and arrange totally seasonally. So you will see them both next week.
You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.